Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, high-yield bonds has been an area that a lot of investors have been hating for years, and yet it has continued to deliver uh, with almost an 18% gain last year and on pace for a 3.9% increase just year to date. We're not even halfway through the year. But now we have Peter Shear, head of macro strategy at Breen Capital, saying that it is important to start being cautious on high yields. And I want to bring him on to get a sense of why. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. So at this time, when you don't have defaults picking up materially and you don't necessarily see a recession uh, within the next six-month horizon, according to most forecasts. Why is now a good time to start getting bearish on high yield? You know, I think there's two overriding themes. One is that spreads are very tight, so credit spreads have contracted a lot, you know, on the back of last year's rally and what we've had so far this year. And overall, yields are pretty low, given where treasuries are. So a lot of these indices and index-based products are kind of giving you 55 maybe 6% yield, which is a little bit low for the risk. And then the other big factor for me really is that oil had been such a tailwind in the past year. It had been very helpful to the whole industry, sorry, to the whole high-yield portfolio. Right now, I think oil's you know stalled out. Pete Cheer, can we read anything into this? Because spreads were below 4% in mid-2007. We know what happened then. And then there was a 30% decline in the high yield market. And then spreads also were below 4% in 2014. And after that, what happened? A 20% drop in high yield. Is this a harbinger of things to come? I don't know that we'll see that sort of drop, but I do think it is a warning sign that the risk-reward is now skewed to the downside. People have to remember that high yield does tend to, when it sells off, it tends to sell off fairly quickly and fairly aggressively. Two other little warning signs that strike me is I look at some of the high-yield ETFs. They have as much as 30% of their portfolio is technology and communications. If you go back to right before the energy problems hit, energy sector had become a big part of these portfolios because all these indices, they basically are based on the amount of debt outstanding. So companies that need money tend to, you know, issue a lot of debt, become big parts of these indices, and then they become very problematic if that sector runs into a hiccup at all. So you're talking about Sprint, for example, uh, on the telecommunications side and then on the technology side. I mean, Dell is is obviously the big example, and they're going to be selling more debt to finance their LBO. So uh, do you think that we're going to see weakness in the tech and the, uh, and the telecommunications areas in the near term? Because this has been a big question for a lot of people because of what you're saying, the concentration in the, in the index. Yeah, and I'm not sure that we will see weakness, but what I am fairly confident, if we see any weakness, it will be more than you would expect otherwise because the technicals will take over. Anytime you get these big sectors have weakness, people are forced to reduce exposure and everyone already owns so much of that, it tends to you know, create a clearing price much lower than you would expect. So I think that's why we're very susceptible to a larger sell-off. And it is a reason, too, I think I would really look to finding good managers that you like. 
you know, there's the whole debate passive versus active. I think right now in the high yield space in particular, you want to find a good active manager. Are you seeing money flow more to active managers as a result? Or are are investors sort of ignoring uh, the tea leaves showing that that perhaps an active manager, uh, and frankly, in high yield, I think they have outperformed uh, passive pretty consistently, particularly in high yield bonds. Yeah, and I think that's going to be an area that high yield, the active did suffer with this whole trend towards passive. I think as people take a closer look, they'll realize this is a sector where credit expertise, building the right portfolio, finding the right bonds, being able to participate in the new issues can offer a lot of value. So I think the active, you know, if we're going to draw a line in the sand where active can beat passive, maybe it's this high yield and that message has to get out there a little bit. So with respect to your sort of bearish view on high yield saying that there's more downside than upside right now, what's the best way to play that? Do you recommend that people try to short this debt? Because it's notoriously very difficult to short. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to short. I would say probably the best way to play it right now is if you can do it, buy some maybe puts on some of the ETFs. So there's JNK and HYG, which are two very large and liquid ETFs that have pretty deep options markets. So that would probably be the easiest way to play it. Beyond that, you know, you could short it. I would not recommend shorting individual issues. I think that's just too hard. Pete Shear, is there a way for an investor to get this kind of yield without taking this kind of risk? That's a tricky question. I think there are some other areas. People have been very successful. We've had you know investors successful looking at the closed-end fund arena. Correct. I also still like leverage loans, where that's the loan equivalent of the high-yield bond market, but it's senior secured and it's floating rate. So I'm more comfortable in that space because I don't think it's going to have quite the volatility of the high-yield bond market. So you give up a little bit of yield. But I think that risk-reward characteristic is much more in your favor to be in the leveraged loan space rather than the bond space right even, now. Even with all the repricing? Because basically what happens when people are flooding into a, into the leveraged loan market is that the borrowers can go back to the investors and say, you know what, we can get this loan for a better deal, so we're going to cut the rate that we're going to pay you, and they're doing that at a record pace. I mean, doesn't that sort of create a downside? Well, that's the thing. It doesn't really create a downside. I mean, your income will be less. So to me, though, high yield, the bond side has much more upside typically than the loans. And right now, I don't see that upside for the bond market. So you're not giving up as much, right? Because a lot of the bonds, not only do they have fairly low yield, a good portion of these indices are now yield to call. So they're, say, trading at a $118 price and are callable at 108 in two years. So there's no upside in the bonds either. So that's happening through time as those bonds become callable. So I think that differential is less. I would agree you know, if you get a bit of a sell-off, then you're going to want the high-yield bonds and avoid that repricing risk. Peter, are there uh, investors or even professionals that have gotten into the high-yield business that shouldn't be there and will be washed out when or if there's a decline? You know, I'm not sure about that, but I do think this whole trend towards index investing doesn't work quite as well in the credit space or the fixed income space because there really does tend to be a longer-term disconnect. The companies that issue debt are the ones that become dominant in these indices. Over time, they tend to be not the companies that you want to own the most of. So that's the big disconnect. So I think in the fixed income space and the credit space and some of these ETFs, we should see a slowdown in ETF and people look to managers and look to building their own portfolios even. Peter, this is such a tough time. Imagine that when you talk to uh, investment managers, they say to you, you know, this is this is a boring market. I mean, we just don't see a big catastrophe on the horizon and nothing looks that great either. Are people just like angsting to you these days? Yeah, I think the industry as a whole seems, everyone's frustrated, right? It's, we've 
been churning, I guess, for lack of a better word. We go up a little bit, we go down a little bit. There's been no clear trend. What seems to work one day gets banged up by Washington the next day. It's been a very tough and frustrating market. The strategies that I believe are winning or doing well are people who have moved to far less liquid bonds, given up some liquidity, maybe into more structured debt. But the problem there is they're making it through yield and this excess you know, interest margin. That just takes a long time to show up in the numbers. It's not like you buy a bond and it's up eight points and you know, everyone's high-fiving each other. It's the steady grind and not making mistakes. That's what we look for you to do. Help us navigate those potential mistakes. Thanks very much. Peter Cheer, head of macro strategy at Breen Capital. You can follow him on Twitter at TFMKTS. Now, however, we want to get an update on what is going on with auto sales and how the sales have been slowing and used car resale values have been declining. How long will this continue? Jamie Butters has that for us. He's U.S. Autos reporter uh, for Bloomberg News, and he comes to us from Detroit. So, Jamie, uh, you know, can we just take a look, take scope of what's happened so far, how much, uh, you know, car sales have declined and how much more car uh, executives think that they will continue to decline? You know that's the that's the billion dollar question, Lisa. Uh, you know sales are down only about you know one and a half percent so far this year, and they might fall by you know out of a seventeen and a half million market by two or three hundred thousand for the year, which is all pretty manageable. Uh, but the big the big question, the big issue hanging out, you know, two or three years down the road is is this? Uh, we a lot of people are hoping and and predicting that this is a a plateau. Sales will stay around seventeen million uh, near the near the all-time records uh, and just kind of scuffle along there. But uh, some other folks are looking at it and saying, this is not an industry that plateaus, it's an industry that booms and busts. And is this really the start of a, a traditional cyclical contraction uh, that would take a, a few million units out of the market? So that's kind of the, the thing to keep watching. Uh, Jamie, can I interest you in a $50,000 minivan? <laughs> it is a lovely minivan. That is a really nice car. Tell people uh, the just, story of this minivan, this uh, Chrysler Pacifica. I think it's a, a great and a very cool product when you get into it. But what is going on with a $50,000 minivan? I mean, it's, it's like a entertainment center on wheels. I was I was just so amazed. I, I got the chance to drive this car and I and I got in and I was like, wow, you know, this is this is really nice. I, I had heard about and I'd read about how, you know, it's so much better made than all the previous Chryslers, which you know are traditionally not the highest quality, uh, really among the among the lowest quality uh, in all the big surveys. But this is a really well made vehicle. It's got great uh, materials, and then you get in the back seat and there are twin touch screens. You can play multiple videos on them. You can play video games against each other. Uh, the third row seats recline. There's the, you know, the built-in vacuum cleaner, I guess, if you spill your $100 Cheerios or something. Uh, uh, <laughs> and it is just, it is not as all, not at all a traditional, you know, kind of family hauler. It's more like a more like a luxury vehicle. It was just fantastic. But then I looked, and it was you know forty nine four fifty uh, before taxes or license or any of that. And it is it just kind of blew my mind at how uh, we really keep reaching into new levels of, of luxury and higher prices because that's of course where the automakers make their money. The higher price tickets, higher price items they can sell you, uh, the bigger the margins are. Well, and are there people out there who have a robust demand and appetite for a fifty thousand? thousand dollar minivan? 
Well, we'll see. I mean, it's certainly worth exploring, right? If you're a Fiat Chrysler and you invented that segment, uh, they still have a lower end minivan. The Dodge Caravan is still on the market and, and the range of the Pacificas, uh, you know, starts in the high 20s and then reaches up. So we'll see. You know, they have had, they've given a lot of thought to minivans over the years uh, up at Auburn Hills where Chrysler is based, has long been based. And, uh, and there have been some who believe that it's really going to be the vehicle of retirement, you know, for boomers who who drove them when they were uh, young and had young families that they might might be what they want in retirement as it's uh, easier ingress and e- easier to get in and out of than uh, than a big SUV uh, but we'll see it's certainly it's an it's an exciting offering anyone else going down the same road We'll see, you know, we're going to see a new uh, minivan from Honda, I believe, later this year, and we'll see how how far upscale they go. Uh, Honda is uh, has has gotten higher prices traditionally for their Odyssey minivan than Chrysler got for the town and country that the Pacifica replaces. Whether they try to go this far up, uh, it'll, I'll be really interested to watch that. All what right. the high end is on the new Odyssey. Well, we'll go for a ride with you. Jamie Butters, Absolutely. he's our uh, U.S. Autos reporter, joining us from our Detroit bureau. And uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Mittenhawk. That's M-I-T-T-E-N Hawk. Who knew? Jamie Butters, thank you very much. Talking about a $50,000 Chrysler uh, minivan. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash lens. Well, we'd like to find out what's going on in Washington, D.C., and there's no one better than Eric Wasson, our congressional reporter for Bloomberg. Eric, thanks for being with us. Where do you want to begin, the spending bill that gets rid of some of Donald Trump's favorite programs, or should we look internally at the White House and what's going on between cabinet officials and White House uh, advisors? Where do you want to go? Well, I want to talk about the uh, spending bill that was, released, that was released at 2.18 in the morning. This is a typical practice for Congress to drop uh, a trillion-dollar spending bill in the middle of the night when no one's looking. Uh, this deal uh, is a real winner for congressional Democrats. Uh, President Trump was looking to make about $18 billion in cuts uh, to the budget uh, for the bill that will fund the government through September. Uh, those cuts are not being made. He was also looking for uh, border wall money to build the uh, wall on the border with Mexico. Uh, that that's also not happening in this bill. Uh, Democrats were basically able uh, to get Republican leaders to go along uh, under the argument that if the government were to shut down, which it would on Friday evening without another spending bill, that Democrats uh, would be uh, would not be the ones blamed. Instead, it would be Trump and uh, Republicans because they control Congress. Well, Eric, what does this particular bill that got passed say about Republican support for President Trump's agenda? 
Well, I should mention, first of all, it's, it's not been passed yet. It was released in the middle of the night. It's probably going to be voted on Wednesday, and uh, it will probably be a bipartisan vote with Democrats and, and, and most Republicans going for it, although there'll be a number of fiscally conservative Republicans who won't be able to support it because it does not uh, cut spending. Uh, I think it shows at this point, uh, at least on spending bills, which require Democrats, uh, Republicans don't have a 60-vote uh, uh, filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Uh, Trump doesn't have uh, the upper hand that he might have on, on tax or health care, where they can use special budget procedures in order to sort of ram bills through Congress without Democratic support. You know, Eric, you started off by saying that the budget was delivered at 2 in the morning. What was it, 2.18? Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right. So is there any possibility that the actual system, the machinery of government has broken down to the point where people just shrug their shoulders when the federal government threatens to shut down? I think it's it is interesting uh, the way that these things are done. You know, we have a democracy, and yet uh, bills are often rammed through before people really have a chance to read it. I think a lot of people will be voting on this bill on Wednesday, and they'll have really very little idea of what's in it. Uh, we all here at Bloomberg, we have a very good team at Bloomberg Government as well, are combing through uh, all the text of this. And there's a lot of hidden provisions. Uh, there, there's benefits from everyone, from home builders to mining companies uh, in here. Uh, you know, but uh, the way these things are released, uh, it does raise questions about democracy, I have to say that. Well, and not only that, but also it only extends the deadline for when government would get shut down until September 30th, right? I mean, we're going to be doing this all over again in a couple months. That's right. We are already seven months into the current fiscal year. There there couldn't be any agreement. Uh, Actually, spending panel panel members tried to come up with an agreement in December, but uh, President Trump, when uh, he was coming in, said he wanted to weigh in in order to uh, influence the bills. But uh, what's really striking about it is the lack of influence that the administration has on these bills. It's very much similar to the uh, the deal that was on the table in December. One notable exception, though, is a $15 billion increase to the Pentagon. Trump had uh, sought a $30 billion increase in Pentagon funding, and he's going to get about half that. Well, and he will get about a, a billion dollars and a half for border security, but it can't use, it'd be used for the border wall or additional ICE uh, officials, immigration and customs enforcement agents, right? I mean, so in other words, it's sort of he kind of got more support for some of his law enforcement uh, push, but not really to exactly back his initiatives, correct? That's right. I mean, Democrats, uh, many Democrats have been on record saying they support, uh, you know, increased border security, better, you know, technology along the border, uh, upgrades to existing equipment. They do not want uh, to be seen uh, backing Trump's call for a, quote, deportation force. So that's why they put a restriction on, in, uh, in this bill on uh, hiring additional ICE agents. And they also do not want to fund a, a coast-to-coast border wall, which they view as an incredible waste of money. And they say that it would actually cost about $70 billion if you went through and, and built that. I was looking at the uh, the reports about this legislation. It's over 1,600 pages, correct? That's right. And that, that's just uh, the text. Uh, there's also what's called explanatory statements where uh, they explain or have other hidden provisions. So there's just a lot of uh, paper that was was dumped on us in the middle of the night. Okay. The reason I'm, I bring that up is because, I mean, has do you believe anybody has actually read all 1,665 pages? I don't think there's one person. I know there's uh, the way they do it is they have teams of staff reading through, uh, but that's uh, that's broken up into uh, 11 different subcommittees. So, yeah, as, as to whether the chairman or anyone has actually read the whole thing, uh, I would tend to doubt it. So, Eric, does the fact that, that House and Senate Democrats and Republicans came to this agreement in itself representative of actually somewhat of a truce between both members of uh, of the different parties? 
I think so. I think it also, you know, the Trump has for for the next budget, the one that begins in September, called for very big changes, called for $54 billion in cuts to federal agencies and already is having uh, places like the uh, Environmental Protection Agency and State Department uh, prepare for uh, massive reductions in the federal workforce. Uh, I think it it shows that uh, Congress has very little appetite for that. And and those uh, who work for the federal government may rest a little bit easier uh, tonight that their jobs are uh, more likely to be secure. Eric Wasson, thank you so much for joining us. Eric Wasson is a congressional reporter for Bloomberg News based in Washington, D.C., talking about the $1.1 trillion spending bill that will likely be passed this week to stave off a government shutdown. Definitely something we will keep you up to date as we hear more details. Let's turn to a potential media deal. I want to bring in Paul Sweeney. Paul, of course, is our uh, chief uh, director of research, I guess U.S. director of research, a senior media internet analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He wears a couple of different hats uh, in that role. Uh, Great to have you, as always, Paul. Um, What is this uh, deal or not deal going to look like? Fox, uh, 21st Century Fox. Uh, maybe buying or teaming up with uh, Blackstone, Stephen Schwartzman's Blackstone, in order to what? Purchase some TV stations from Tribune, even more. That's right. That's right. Tribune is is a large TV station group owner, and they've been... You know, rumored uh, to be for sale, um, I guess really over the last uh, several weeks, Sinclair Broadcast Group, which is the largest owner of TV stations in the U.S., has been uh, widely reported to be talking to them and trying to get a deal done, maybe in the high $30 uh, per share range. Uh, that would create an even bigger uh, TV station group. And, and just most uh, just over the last day or so, I think Fox said, gee, maybe not so fast. Maybe we want to take a look at these Tribune stations. And, um, and I think they were also looking for a financial partner to come in and help them finance it. Uh, and create maybe a separate standalone uh, broadcasting company consisting of Fox stations, which they own a lot of the big Fox affiliates in the New York, L.A., Chicago, the big markets, uh, and combine that with the Tribune stations across the country. So Blackstone is the one that supposedly is talking with 21st Century Fox to make this bid for Tribune. Um, And it sort of came as a surprise to me that Blackstone is teaming up with 21st Century Fox. I mean, do they have a history of doing deals together? Uh, No, they don't. Don't per se, but the private equity business um, has uh, has been a big fan of the broadcasting business for decades. Really? Uh, yeah, believe Why? it or not, the the radio and TV business, while it's not the the fastest growing, sexiest uh, business in the world, it produces tremendous cash flow and tremendous free cash flow, which then of course can support debt, which drive equity returns. So we've seen TV stations, uh, you know, being swapped in and out uh, by the private equity sector for really thirty or forty years, and so this is another example of I think. Uh, you know, prop, prop, uh, you know, the Blackstone folks coming in and teaming up with obviously the great strategic partner in 21st Century Fox to uh, invest some money in the sector. So before we get to what the potential gain would be for 21st Century Fox, I have to ask, does Tribune have a lot of debt and how much could they potentially add with this partnership with Blackstone and 21st Century Fox? And right. So, so the, the broadcasting industry in general can support very high levels of debt, you know, four or five times uh, net debt to EBITDA, which is very good if you're uh, a private equity uh, player. Tribune does have some debt, and uh, even 21st Century Fox has some debt, and they're also 
21st Century Fox is also trying to close on a multi-billion dollar acquisition of Sky uh, in the UK. So they're trying to keep their powder dry a little bit there. So I think 21st Century Fox said, listen, we could go out and buy Tribune. It's only about a $4 billion uh, uh, transaction value, uh, but there's a lot of debt that would be that we'd have to assume, and that would you know uh, constrain us a little bit uh, in some of the other things we want to do globally. So let's bring in a financial partner in terms of Blackstone. Uh, they love the business, they they understand the business, and we can then you know we will contribute our TV stations and. Blackstone will contribute to cash, and that'll be a nice, well-capitalized company consisting of really a lot of big Fox affiliates uh, and some other uh, stations around the country. I want to understand that there's one radio station, correct? WGN. That's uh, the big right. station that that is currently owned by uh, Tribune. Right. And then there are 43 additional television stations that are right. also up for grabs. Are there regulatory hurdles that 21st Century Fox would have to jump yes. over? Yes. And, and, and what's driving this M&A consolidation is we are, in fact, getting a lot of deregulation under the Donald Trump FCC. I was just out in Las Vegas last week at the National Association of Broadcasters Conference, and the dominant discussion point was M&A and consolidation. Uh, we've already seen the uh, FCC just in the last several weeks roll back some ownership restrictions on the television industry. Uh, most investors feel like we're going to get even more uh, deregulatory moves coming out of this FCC. If, in fact, we do, that could then you know, help some of these deals get done. Most notably, 21st Century Fox will need some more deregulation than, than what's already been, been announced to get this deal done. So uh, 21st Century Fox's shares are down almost a percent. I'm just wondering, what's the benefit here for, for that company? Um, I think the benefit for 21st Century Fox is there's probably a little bit of a balance sheet uh, um, an improvement uh, performer for this deal by bringing in Blackstone. But I think if you're 21st Century Fox, you really think of yourself as a global content player with a movie studio and cable networks. And, and you know, those are maybe faster growing, a little bit more sexier businesses, content in a digital world. Maybe the ownership of local television affiliates around the United States isn't necessarily core to your business. It's certainly core to your Fox network in the United States, but maybe you don't need to have full ownership of those stations. So I think it's a little bit of a strategic move on the part of Fox to focus more on their faster growing global businesses, including this pending deal for Sky in the UK. Uh, and then it's also a way to, for them to give them some financial flexibility uh, with their balance sheet. Just comparing Fox to the other broadcasters, whether it's CBS or uh, Comcast, who's in the best position right now? Well, CBS is is interesting. CBS really is a pure play U.S. broadcasting company. They own the CBS network. They own Showtime. Uh, they own uh, their big affiliates. They've pretty much gotten out of a lot of their other businesses, including uh, right now they're trying to uh, uh, merge their radio business with Entercom. So they're really going to focus on their U.S. Uh, broadcast and uh, premium uh, channel. And they their stock has done really well over the last four or five years as Les Moonves has been able to drive higher ratings at his broadcast network and higher higher revenue uh, from advertising and from retransmission fees. Real quick, you think this deal is going to get done with 21st Century Fox and Blackstone? Uh, I don't know. There's a big competitor out there that wants this company, and that's Sinclair Broadcast Group. But I think this Fox uh, Blackstone group is, a, is really the group to beat. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much for joining us. Really uh, an interesting development, and I'm sure there'll be more consolidation to come, as Paul was saying, because some of the regulation by the FCC has been rolling uh, back. Paul Sweeney is U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.